Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. Okay, so in this episode, I'd like to take you through the exit from my apartment and into the ambulance um then my experience going into the er and my stay in the hospital and discovering my injuries and what they would mean um as well as you'll hear from my mom again who you heard from in the last episode um and a continuation of her story as well as i will be introducing um a friend of mine who was present in the hospital and hear his perspective on what that was like. Um, So I'm excited to share with you and stay tuned. So in the last episode, you heard the 911 calls um, and snippets from the footage taken from a body cam that was on one of the officers present. And you can hear the firefighters and the police discussing um, transferring me to UCLA Westwood, which is a a hospital in Los Angeles in the Westwood neighborhood. What uh, do you know what hospital you guys are going to? Uh, we're um, determining that now. Okay. We might be going to Westwood. Okay. So basically, um, she's claimed some guy broke in, went to sleep, uh, demanded property from her, and uh, and then tried to rape her and cut her with a knife. Okay. Just home invasion. All right, you're gonna be okay. All right, uh, we're gonna take care of you. Yeah. I remember sitting there, but I I really don't remember how many people were around. I remember one of the firefighters, um, and I remember his name, and I remember being very relieved um, as he was explaining to me what my injuries were just by how calming he was um, and how comforting he was. He just, you know, he gave me warnings before he would touch my skin and let me know I'm going to touch you here now, that being, you know, my arms and my head to investigate my injuries and and check out you know how bad things were and bandage me up and I I must have known that there were other firefighters present but really I was just keyed in on this one firefighter and his his name was Bryce and he rode with me in the ambulance to UCLA Westwood I remember asking Bryce um, if I was going to die because that was, you know, when they were talking about transferring me to the hospital, I think that really was the first moment once we were in the ambulance together that that thought really crossed my mind. And I remember really being afraid when I asked him, if I was going to die and telling him, don't lie to me, tell me the truth. Um, and I would have liked to know. And he looked at me and he said, you're not going to die. I promise. I promise you that you're not going to die. And I think I asked him one more time and he said, I promise. I do remember pulling into the ER, um, behind the building at UCLA Westwood 
and they wheeled me out. So what I remember is they wheeled me out on the gurney and there was a really bright light on in this kind of intake area that felt, it felt like, you know, where you would unload trucks kind of. Um, and there was a guy, I think the door was propped open. There was a guy in a wheelchair that was kind of sitting in the doorway or near the doorway. And there was a doctor or some sort of attendant with him. And as they wheeled me in on the gurney, uh, the guy in the wheelchair said, what the hell happened to her? And I I remember thinking that that was a bad sign (laughs) that I really must not look great if, you know, the guy who's hanging out at the the intake of the ER is shocked at my appearance. And I really, I probably did not. Um, You'll see images on my um, Extraordinary Podcast Instagram account um, of how I probably looked at that time. Uh, And I, I would have probably asked the same question, what the hell happened to her? So they wheeled me in um, past this guy who was sitting in his wheelchair um, and his friend. And we wheeled past on my, we were in a corridor, like a hallway. And I remember looking to my left and there was a, an empty room, um, like a, a surgical looking room. And all the lights were kind of off. Um, no one was in there. And then... The next doorway we came up to, there were, it was brightly lit. Um, there were people moving around, a bunch of people moving in there. And as we wheeled past, all these eyes turned to look toward the hallway. And I, I remember thinking as we wheeled past that door, because that, it was also my first time in the ER, um, I remember thinking, wow, they must be preparing for somebody who's hurt really bad, like a a gunshot wound or, you know, someone's must be coming in through the waiting room that, that needs 15 or 20 people in a surgical setting, um, to care for them. And we, we wheeled past the room and then the, the guys who were pushing me kind of pulled the gurney back and cut the corner to turn into that room. And then I remember again, that being a moment that I got really scared that I, that I realized that I was the person that needed that much care. Um, and that many people in that room. Um, so they transferred me onto the surgical bed. And like I said, there were I don't know how many people were in there, but it felt like in this tiny room, um, there were double doors that, you know, the gurney went in through, but then there were probably about 15 to 20 people at any given time and people were kind of rushing in and out and they transferred me onto the surgical bed. And I just, I remember laying on that bed and my feet were closest to the double doors and my head was facing that way, but I was laying down and it was just a flurry of so many people. Um, and you know, there was, there were machines beeping and people were touching me and I remember them, um, telling me that they were going to cut off my clothes. So I remember them taking a big, pair of scissors and cutting off my sweatpants that I had put on, um, and cutting off my shirt. And I, I think those all got taken into evidence. They must have, and I don't know why they had to cut them, but they did. Um, I remember being especially sad about those pants cause I really liked those pants. Um, but as I was laying there, I, I, there was kind of a halo of three 
nurses, I, th- I think, that were staying around my head. And there was one I remember that had blondish curly hair and she had like, like little ringlets and she had kind of like tortoise glasses, tortoise rimmed glasses with, and it looked like there were flecks of green in them. Um, and I just, I remember the, the outpouring of love, um, and support from the voices of these kind of, you know, these, this halo of three or four women that were staying up close to my head, um, and talking to me. They were telling me how proud they were of me. They were telling me they knew what happened. They were telling me they were, they were so happy that I was alive. Um, you know, I think we got to a point where we were, you know, making jokes to each other and laughing and, or trying to, um, I, I remember like feeling like we were chatting and I think that's also a little bit of a self-defense mechanism of, of mine to try to make everyone in the room comfortable and, and not worry about me. Um, but it was also a great distraction from all of, you know, an entire room of strangers hands touching me everywhere. Um, and you know, picking up my arms and picking up my feet and, che- you know, checking my breath and, um, you know, making sure, checking everywhere that I was hurt and taking off all the bandages the firemen had put on and taking a look at my injuries. Um, I do remember it was such a stark difference, I think, between, you know, feeling um, the one-on-one attention of the, the firefighters and the the level of um, sanctity and reverence for touch and what that must have felt like after my experience. And then going into the ER, it was just a free-for-all. Um, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with that, but just, or that anything was done wrong, just from an experience standpoint, my body became an object of sorts, um, or, you know, an object to keep alive. But I do remember them telling me that they would have to stick two fingers inside of my anus. Um, and I think that was to check for a spinal injury. And they, I think they turned me on my side to do it. And I only share that to share how the level of how intrusive that experience is. Um, and I was not raped that night, but if I had been, um, they did ask if I wanted a rape kit done. And I said no, because I had not been raped. Um, but my understanding is that a rape kit would be even more intrusive. Um, so all to say I was receiving the best care, um, at a top tier hospital. And these were all measures that were taken to keep me safe and keep me alive. But as the person it was happening to, um, that was how I felt was kind of just rushed into a bright light and, you know, touched by many hands. And I was so thankful for, um, those women that stayed near my head to keep me calm. I'm sure that they knew to a degree, um, what that must feel like. I, I remember talking to my mom for the first time, uh, while I was laying on that, uh, that surgical bed in the, in the ER. Um, there was a woman named Ruth who was a social worker and she came and was one of the, one of the people that were talking to me up near my head. And she was on my right and she was asking me 
for a number to call if, if I had anyone to call. Um, and like I mentioned in the last episode, I, I had tried to call an ex-boyfriend who lived nearby before I called 911. Um, but my parents and my family all live in Wisconsin, which is hours away. And, um, I hadn't tried calling them yet. Um, because I was still in kind of immediate need, but the social worker asked for my family's phone number and I gave it to her. And I also gave her the phone number for my ex-boyfriend and was still very focused on, on getting a hold of him. I think my mind was get a hold of him and get a hold of my mom. I think were the, the two that I just kept repeating to them, those two phone numbers. Um, and she, she rushed out through the double doors, I remember, and she came back in, um, and I couldn't use either of my arms because I think I had an IV in my right arm and, um, they were working on my left arm and my hand was badly damaged and my elbow was badly damaged on that arm. So, um, the social worker, Ruth, held the phone to my ear and I, I wrote this in my victim impact statement that I just, I remember the voice on the other end of the phone sounding so far away. Um, like it was played through a sonograph or something like that. Um, or on an old tape recorder. It sounded so far. Um, but it was my mom's voice. And Ruth held the phone to my ear. And my mom said, I, I don't know, maybe she said hi. And I said, I'm okay. And she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And I think that was it. It was very, very short. And then Ruth took the phone and exited back through those double doors. And I rem- I remember just really kind of trusting that that was right. You know, that they had things to talk about and that was all that needed to be said. I think we just needed to hear each other's voices. Then she started saying your name and um, what I asked her what happened and were you okay and she said she's okay and um, she started describing some of the wounds that you had and I was just getting sicker by the minute and um, then she said you were going to go to surgery and that I said well, well we're coming we'll get there as soon as we can and then she said um if you come, you have to use this code name because they're not giving out her name to people. From that room in the ER where they were first kind of taking my vitals and everyone was checking out, you know, everything that had happened and everything that was wrong and checking for spinal injuries, um, they took me into a CT scan because of my head injuries. Um, so I remember being in the CT scan. I remember, and that took a while. And then I remember going into another room and it was always different people in every room. And this was over a span of maybe two or three hours, but, um, you know, one nurse would transfer to another nurse would transfer to another nurse and some some would chat with me and some it didn't even really seem to register that I was there <laughs> um like they'd just continue their conversation about what they were had been talking about and I was just a body present but in that time my mom was able to get a hold of a friend of mine that lived in Los Angeles And I remember seeing him standing outside one of the rooms 
in the hallway and a nurse came in and said, your friend is here. And he was able to come into the room and he's the only person that saw me, um, before everything was closed up and bandaged and cleaned. And he just sat next to me and we cried and we were so happy to see each other. I think I know I was happy to see him. right after that they wheeled me into surgery and I remember talking about the the Packers the Green Bay Packers with the attendant that was taking me to surgery um, in the elevator and then going into the surgical room and then that was it so now that you've gotten my take on that morning in the ER um and entering the hospital, I want to introduce my friend that I mentioned, my friend Andrew. His husband was the first one there with me that morning. Um, And the two of them were present in the hospital that morning. And for the four to five days following that I was in the hospital. Um, So this is Andrew. Um, do I say my last name? Do I say any identifying characteristics? I'd give you a social security number. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name's Andrew. Well done, you're a pro. <laughs> All right, my name's Andrew. And I've known Lee, how long have I known Lee for? Oh. Six, seven? Seven years. Years? Wow. Mm. How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 27. <laughs> Um, how did we meet? Maybe you we met say. at work. We met at our, at our job at Beats by Dr. Dre. Um, yeah, that's how that's around the time we became friends. Mostly because you and my husband really hit it off. I remember that Vincent had that quality that he, like, when he. Sp- to you it was like nobody else existed in the room like that kind of like magic charisma quality and good listening he's a good listener Mm -hmm. yeah and then um i believe i think you i think either he was or you were like i think you were like i really love your husband and we're like actually gonna hang out (laughs) he's like okay (laughs) fine then um and then you did. So as Andrew mentioned, um, he and I and his husband, Vincent, have been friends for about seven years. Um, and at the time of the attack, we were very much in each other's lives. We spent holidays together. We, My ex-boyfriend and I flew out to Australia to spend Christmas with Andrew's family. He's from Adelaide in Australia. Um, And his husband, Vincent, and their extended family. And we spent birthdays together. We were very, very, very close. Um, And as I mentioned, they were ever present in the hospital. The two of them, I don't remember a moment where the two of them weren't there. We were sitting out in the in the waiting area um, for a long time. I can't remember how many hours it was, but yeah, we were there for quite a while. And then they let us know that we could go and see you um, that e- evening, I guess it was at that point, or afternoon maybe. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So. so while Andrew and his husband were waiting... Um, for me to get out of surgery, my mom and her husband were trying to make it out to California. And the funny thing is about that trip, that long trip, we hardly talked. To, and this is before COVID. <laughs> um, we hardly talked to anybody. We were just pretty much quiet the whole time. We, we just didn't want to talk about it. You know, we just didn't know what to say or to each other. You know, <clears throat> we didn't know 
whether or not you were raped. And that was the underlying thing besides your physical wounds that I wanted to know but didn't want to know. Um, so I think that was the anguish of that trip was not knowing that. And wonder. And then, yeah. And then when we got to California, we took an Uber to the hospital with our bags and said that code name. And then we got up to your room and you were there already done with surgery. I think your surgery was the entire time we were, or it was like seven hours, I think your surgery was. I don't know how long you were out of surgery, but you were back in your room. <clears throat> and you had a giant cast on your left arm. Um, and it was huge. And your hand it was all the way down, like, and your hand, your fingers were barely out, and it was heavy. Um, and your face was cut on your forehead. I could see that you had been cut a couple times on your forehead. Um, it was very hard to see you like that. But then when we walked in the room, you said, we, you sort of told us a little bit about what happened. And then you said, do you want to know if I got raped or did, or something like that? And we said, yes. And you said, I did not. I, I fought remember. him. I said, what? I fought him. He did, he did not rape me. He could not rape me. I, I wouldn't let him. I don't remember that. Well, you were on a lot of medication from the surgery. So you might not remember some of the stuff from the hospital very well. Um, I can't remember where, like, it was just disparate pieces of information, but... Um... So I, I can't remember exactly how the story formed, but I felt like by the time you were coming to, we had a pretty good idea of, I had a pretty good idea of what had happened. Obviously not every detail of like, I was here and then I was pushed there and then I was whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so from that point, it was less about trying to, you know, uh, understand what was going on and more just about seeing, like understand what was going on with you and, and are you going to survive and health wise and all that. Cause at that point, I mean, you looked like shit. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom called my dad and my brothers and told them what happened. But at that point, my mom and her husband were the only two that had planned on flying out. And my parents have been divorced since I was seven and they both remarried um, when I was in my teens and our family, I would say the two sides did not merge well. Um, it was a rare occasion for my mom and my dad to be in the same room together um, for graduations and milestones and birthdays and things. It was always planned to be very separate. Um, so when my mom arrived, she quickly realized that this was something that my dad should probably fly out for. Then the next day I remember going down to the lobby and calling your dad um, and telling him he should come. Um, so I just went down to the lobby and I said, this is worse than I thought. You should come. And worse than you thought from the, the stabbing, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I thought, but I said, this is, this is really bad. Yeah. So the actual injuries that I had, this is from my UCLA chart from that morning. Um, it lists multiple lacerations, trauma, 
um, flexor tendon laceration of finger with open wound, um, open dislocation of oh, interphalangeal joint of left ring finger. And then in my surgery that I mentioned that I had later, um, an ulnar nerve laceration on my left side. Um, so what that meant was that I had one two inch, uh, laceration in my forehead and one three inch laceration in my forehead. I had, I think about a, I would guess when it first happened, like a four to five inch laceration in my right forearm, um, a four to five inch laceration on my left tricep, outer tricep. Um, and then my elbow, like I mentioned, was badly cut. Um, and it was cut down, I think at an angle, but you could, the bone was exposed and I, I've never, I've never broken a bone. I've never been injured like that. Um, and I could feel even when it was open, the rawness of, of that much being exposed to the air. Um, and it, that laceration was stitched up that morning in February, but the doctors missed an ulnar nerve laceration. So my ulnar nerve was completely severed, um, on my left side and your ulnar nerve controls, um, movement and feeling on the outer part of your arm and controls the two fingers, ironically, that were cut um, on that side. So your ring finger and your pinky finger. My memory of the hospital at all is spotty, as you'll hear me mention in my conversations um, with my mom and with my friend Andrew. Uh, because the I was on a lot, a lot, a lot of medication, and I think too, I I just was becoming more overwhelmed um, as the days went by. So we weren't thinking that it was going to be anything um, life-ending mm-hmm. um, at that point, but mostly like functional functionality-wise, like we knew that obviously your hand and your I think it was because it was slashes up up the whole arm, right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't know if you were going to get use have use of your arm. Uh, the slashes on your face. Um, like, I think there was a question of how, you know, permanent or visible they were going to be and um, those kinds of things. Um, a lot of unknowns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at that point, too, like, I think we were like, again, it was just those things that you could focus on. Like, we could see cuts, we could see things. It's like, okay, like, is that going to be okay? Is that going to heal? Is that going to whatever? And um, thinking, I guess, maybe that as as long as everything healed, that things could potentially go back to normal. (laughs) Yeah. Even though that was like, it seems, I mean, um, curious how you feel about it, but it seemed like, it seems kind of trivial now to think like whether or not that scar on your forehead was going to heal. Obviously you, for whatever reason you, you want, you want everything to go away. It was like, for some reason that was the priority because it was like, well, maybe normal can, can be, maybe there's an idea that things could be completely got back to normal. Not that this would ever be forgotten about, but like you would look the same. I was equally eager at the time, um, for reassurance that things would go back to normal. And I think part of that was trying to create that atmosphere while I was in the hospital. People were just pouring in 
your friends were just pouring in. Um, that was one thing, I don't know if I think I've told you since then, that's one thing I regret is I, you can't really do it with someone that was your age at the time, which was 32, 33, 32, the, 32. Um, you can't, I can't like call it as a parent and say everybody out or something. And I, I tried a little bit. I'm like, maybe we should, you know, have, have a little bit more quiet time in here or something. And you were like, I want them all. And, um, <laughs> it, I just thought it would have been a little bit, I would have maybe understood what was happening a little bit better if there was less chaos in the room. And I don't even remember really having a good conversation with a doctor or a nurse because there were so many people in the room. Yeah, um, it did feel... So, it did feel like it was a lot harder probably for everyone all of the close you know cl- close family and friends to really settle into and process including myself what mm-hmm. had just happened because yeah i was... think especially yourself yeah mhm so if i had it to do over again I would go out to the nurse's station and I would say to the nurse, will you go in there and be a bad guy and say two, two visitors at a time or something? Yeah. <laughs> that might have worked. I had just an abundance of, of well wishes and, and people sending flowers and people dropping off flowers and visiting. And I, I remember that, that feeling in the hospital and being very euphoric. I mean, I was also on um, medications that induce euphoria, but I, I had my parents there. I had my friends there. I had flowers. I had all of this ooey gooey love and attention and it felt so good. And I, I hadn't experienced any of the physical pain yet. I hadn't experienced PTSD yet so it was just kind of, for me a kind of lovely time um and I was I was aware that people were stressed I was stressed um I was aware that people in the room were up- upset um and that there were tensions in the room. It was a complicated room. Um, but I, I felt very, I was still pretty high off of the adrenaline. I still felt very ready to like fight and kick and speak and punch. And I, I, looking back, felt very kind of cocky, I think, and certain and just sure that I like I got this and I was in control um but I do remember just a little tickle of a feeling that became much more familiar as time went on of feeling lost and lonely and overwhelmed um I think I was pretty naive at that time and I think that naivete was kind of necessary to keep me going because I didn't know what to be afraid of yet um I thought the part where fear was a factor of the experience was over and I I, like I said I didn't know the physical pain yet I didn't know PTSD yet and I felt like I had done it Um, and I was proud and I still am proud, but it just, I was held um, in the hospital and and there's something that I um, experienced that I'm not a religious person per se but 
there have been two moments in my life where I've experienced what I think people are talking about when they talk about God. And one of those moments was in the hospital. And I think that was because I was, it felt like I was physically held by a fabric that was created with all of the energy that was pointed at me, the thoughts and the prayers and the calls and the messages and the, you know, showing up and the friends and the family and all of that love created, it felt like a physical, like a net that would not let me fall. And I remember thinking that I feel like this is what people are talking about when they talk about God. Dynamics going on within the room between people that were not happy that others were in the room and people that I didn't know very well that were in the room. And, you know, it just, it was a complicated ecosystem Mm -hmm. in the room. And I... I have a hard time remembering, I think, obviously, because I had a delotted trip and whatever. It's <laughs> not a lot of drugs. Um, but I do remember that I thought, and I, like, I thought for a long time that I was very together, that I was handling it incredibly well, that I seemed infallible. I had this little tick that came out sometimes, mm-hmm. but was I actually like that (laughs) I doubt it (laughs) um I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't say the opposite like I think you did have it together as much as I would expect anyone to have it together I saw many shades of who who I've come to know you as so I was like she hasn't this hasn't fundamentally She's not. She's not a completely different person. She's not w- completely withdrawn. She's not, you know, distrusting of people. She's not like she's at least parts of her are still, you know, recognizable, and and she seems to be coping. I wouldn't say that it was all like a hundred percent. This is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's got this under control, and we can all like leave now. That wasn't the feeling. But in terms of like in knowing what had happened and knowing the circumstances, it was like remarkably, you were handling it remarkably well. Oh, thank you. I I guess I, maybe I'm hard on myself, but. It wasn't a train wreck. That's (laughs) That's good. That's what you're you're getting at, but. I don't know. So you've heard me mention several times an ex-boyfriend and you've heard me say in that last clip um, that, it was a complicated ecosystem in the room, in my hospital room. And the reason for that was, like I mentioned, my my mom and her husband and my dad all being in the same room was not, not an everyday thing. Um, that was one aspect of it. The other thing that was happening in the room in the days following the attack was my ex-boyfriend was there and this relationship was up and down um over five years we were best friends we were immediately gobsmacked with each other we grew up together we went to high school together um but we were not close until we both separately decided to move to Los Angeles and and ended up living a couple miles away from each other. And one Christmas, we were both back in our hometown in Wisconsin. And everywhere we went, we just kept bumping into each other, literally bumping into each other at, you know, sitting back to back at restaurants or walking up to the bartender at the same bar or crossing the street and the other ones coming the other way on the crosswalk. It just kept happening. Um, 
And when we got back to Santa Monica, we built a friendship that quickly turned into a relationship. And like I mentioned earlier in, in this episode, um, we had, you know, a big network of close friends, friends that were, you know, we spent holidays and vacations together, friends that were very invested in what was happening in our relationship and where we were at. Um, and basically this, this happened in February of 2018 and he and I had decided to separate, um, in August of 2017. And that was not, um, that was not a once in a while occurrence. That was something that we would, you know, we would get together and break up again and we'd fall back in love again and then end it again. It was one of those relationships. And, um, between August and February, we had both dated other people. Um, I had one relationship that lasted for about two months and then we had decided to stay friends. Um, he, I don't think had any longer tail relationships or not that I was aware of at the time, but he was actively dating. Um, and we, we were continuing to speak every day and we spent, um, Valentine's day together. We had a pizza cook off for Valentine's day pizza competition, which I lost, I think was judged by my dog. Um, and the week before the accident or the attack, which is what I'm supposed to say. Um, we had a conversation on my couch about the future of our relationship and, and were we going to move on or were we really going to commit? And I remember asking him, you know, like, do you want to move in together? Do you want to get engaged to each other and move forward on that track? Or do you want to say that this is it and that we're done? And I remember him being unsure and saying that he needs more time and more time. I don't know for what, but I wasn't worried because up to that point, he had been kind of the, the puppy dog that was always in love with me. He had proposed to me in a very exaggerated way. Once when we were broken up, he, one time when I was at work, I I came home from work and he had quote unquote surprised me by moving into my apartment, the same apartment in Santa Monica, um, and had already rented out his place and moved all of his things into my place as a surprise. And I remember being furious. <laughs> That's on par with surprising someone with, with a puppy that they didn't ask for. Although I would personally love that. Um, he, I, th- I think the Christmas before the holiday before had done the love actually thing outside my window with, um, a notepad that he had written things in that said things like, I can't breathe without you. So I, there was no part of me that thought this was the end of the end, I guess. Um, but I tried to get a hold of him after the attack and he didn't answer. My mom also tried, uh, my brother also tried, the hospital tried, uh, and no one, no one could reach him that night. And the first time I saw him and spoke to him was when I woke up from surgery. And I remember from that very first moment, I had been so fixated on seeing him because he was my safety. He was my safe space. He was the person that I imagined would break down the door and rescue me that night. Um, And he was my best friend. 
But I remember from that first moment waking up and talking to him that he felt off. And my memory of the specifics and the timing of that time in the hospital is really jumbled. But the reason for that, or at least the reason that he vocalized later for that was that the the person, the man that I had been seeing for a couple months in that period where we had been broken up um, had driven past my apartment, had seen that there were ambulances and news crews outside. A friend of ours had reached out to him, told him what happened, and he was in the hospital and was talking to my parents and was talking to friends and um, was actually in the hospital. He was, he was being generous and helpful. Um, but it was, you know, if it, if the tables were turned, I can absolutely feel how your heart would just hearing this happened, how your heart would break. And then to see the person that you love, um, or did love or cared very deeply for, and be around someone that they had dated, I, I can see how difficult that would be. Um, but so I think it was it was difficult for both of them to be around each other. And I think also this guy who was in the hospital who I had dated and was no longer dating or, or interested in dating, he, I think, had strong feelings and wanted to be there so there was there was this layer of what was happening in the hospital and meanwhile like I said I was just elated I had my mom and my dad in the same room I had all my friends in the same room sleeping there with me um making me feel like everything was going to be okay and everything was going to go back to normal and we were all going to walk away from this and everything would be fine and normal. Um, so I, I was aware of it, but I think I naively believed that everything would be okay. So I arrived in the hospital on early, early on Friday morning. And on Monday afternoon, I think it was, we received word from the detectives that they had arrested a suspect. Um, And if you remember from the last episode, they were able to pull fingerprints from my apartment, from the crime scene, and run them and found a match in their system. And I didn't know this level of detail while I was in the hospital, but they had run it over the weekend, knew that this person had a scheduled parole meeting on Monday morning and planned to have police waiting for him when he arrived. And I kind of remember getting that news and I kind of don't. Uh, I couldn't really say how I felt. It just felt like I was in kind of a dream. Um, but I'm sure I was relieved and happy to get that news that it was someone that they definitively thought was the person that did it. There was one thing in the hospital that I remember from the very first moments of being conscious after the surgery and throughout the rooms was um, the blood in my hair. 
because I had a head, head injury, uh, my head bled, uh, pretty heavily and my hair had kind of, I don't know who did it. I think it must've been for the surgery had been kind of balled up into a knot, um, behind my head. And the days that I was sitting in the hospital, it just stayed that way. And it was so itchy and so uncomfortable. And I'm sure to a degree, it was a little bit psychosomatic in the sense that I just was aware that I was still covered in blood and I, I wanted it off and I, I wanted it out. I think it was, um, the two nurses and me and Jesse all worked on your hair. That's what I was going to ask. Cause that was a that, turning point for me <laughs> in that last room. Cause what, we tried to get what was happening? Yeah. What was happening with my hair? You were bothered by it so much. And I mean, in the old room too, obviously, but you had a lot of blood in your hair from getting cut with a knife or stabbed with a knife or whatever you call it in the, in the head. Um, and you had a lot of blood in your hair and we were trying to get it out like with washcloths and stuff. Um, but you just kept getting really mad because we weren't doing a good job of getting that blood out of your hair. And that's another thing. If the room would have been calmer, um, we could have asked the nurse to like wash your hair maybe or something. It just, it was just, we just couldn't get the blood out of your hair. And then that last day or the day before you got discharged, one of those two days in that last room, um, Jesse and I and the two nurses all kind of worked on your hair by sections. It was all, it was all snarly and um, caked with blood. So we just like got it out and then they French braided it. They did. And did you guys have a bucket? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember what we had, but it worked. We were happy. Um, I do remember feeling uh, like I was conducting an orchestra while I was in the hospital in, in the sense that nobody knew how to care for someone or that this happened to, and nobody knew what to expect or what to do next, or even what needed to be done or what I wanted or what I was feeling or how to help me. And it felt like everyone was always kind of looking to me to guide them or tell them what to do. And I didn't know either. I, I didn't, this had never happened to me. I, I had no experience in um, being someone that this happened to. And I think that's where the feeling of feeling a little lost and lonely and overwhelmed started uh, was it you know the double-edged coin of everyone looking at you and giving you all the love and attention and care that you could ever need and on the flip side of that coin is everyone looking to you to guide the ship and give them direction and tell them what to do because they don't know what to do and they want to help. But even though you're in a room full of people all wanting to help you and give you everything that you need, you're the only other person on the other side of it, if that makes sense on the other side of that line. Um, so I say all that to say it was 
it was a complicated mix of emotions in the hospital. It was a complicated mix of people and dynamics in the hospital. Um, it was a lovely time in ways, and it was a really stressful and overwhelming time in ways. I think we were all scared and we were all celebrating and we all didn't know what was going to come. Yeah, I remember like being in the hospital and there was like five people sitting around or something and I think you said, can I have some water or something? And like every single person just jumped up because they wanted to give you water. Like, because mm-hmm. they wanted to be able to do something and be like, here, I got you water. I did something, <laughs> you know? I know how to do that. I know, I can, <laughs> there's a thing I can do. And then everyone wants to do it to be the one who did it because that makes you feel like you contributed to the situation. Um, and that's a natural thing. I think everyone would would probably experience some level of that you know, in in multiple ways throughout. But I think being able to even just to be able to recognize that impulse and that, and and that behavior and, and as, as like a microcosm for the bigger thing of like, when do I, what what can and can't I do? And what do I really bring to the situation? And it can make you question, like, can I bring emotional support? Can I bring physical support? Can I bring money, a roof over your head? Can I, like, what can I do for you? And people want to be able to do stuff for you. And I, th- I think it's about not putting putting yourself under so much pressure where you're like, I have to be the water guy or I have to be whatever, like, and trusting that you have something within you that is going to be beneficial for this person on the other side of it. It doesn't have to look like what they're specifically asking for at that time. It might not be needed until a month down the road. It doesn't mean that you're invalid, like that you're not valuable or that you're not being constructive to the situation. You don't know what you're bringing. Don't bring things for the sake of it though, because that's where it gets into the, um, I'm, we're, we all collectively begin overcrowding and we like overwhelm you with all the shit that we're bringing to the situation and trying to tell you how to like, hey, read this book or do this thing or talk to this therapist or talk to this other person or watch this movie or like we can all throw those million things at you just to feel like we're doing something for you. But I think the things that you, you really... The, more, the most meaningful things that you can do will, uh, what will come naturally to you without you having to force it. Um, so trust that you'll have those pockets of time where you, your strength really comes into play. Um, and that can be enough, you know. The extra pressure isn't worth it. Um, you've just got to be there for that person in the ways that you can. so that's everything for this episode um if you head to extraordinary.podcast on instagram you will find um photos um some resources um and ideas for anyone who's in that this situation Um, who's in the hospital or ideas for people who are supporting someone who is, is in a hospital situation or recovering and at this stage of recovery. Um, but I, again, as always want to caution, um, anyone who is interested in, in seeing those, those images, which I share because one, it's just the honesty of the story and two I I just I want people to see how much he didn't care um to hurt me the way he did I don't want to it's not for shock value it's not to um, to 
you know, it's horrible to look at. Um, it's not enjoyable to look at, but I, I just, I think it's important also for survivors who have lived through extreme violence, um, to see the severity and it, it, it could be much, much worse. Um, you know, I know of women who have been, who, you know, someone has been violent with or people have been violent with that the damage is much worse. Um, but all that to say, please, as always, take care um, when taking this in. Um, and in the next episode, it the next episode will be in two parts. Um, and I will dive into what happened after my family and I left the hospital, we'll follow along with the investigation and developments that happened there. Um, and then that I, I think primarily that will be part one. And then part two, we'll dive into uh, uh, over time how PTSD began to really change my brain. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll go into how that affected my life, how that affected my reality and, um, and also go into some of this, the science and, uh, behavior studies behind that. So thank you as always for listening. And I hope you tune into the next episode. Uh, thank you. <laughs>